Black Clock Audio Tales, edited by Daniel Spitzer. Black Clock Audio Tales is a PGTTCM production. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, the gothic tradition, weird tales, and cosmic horror. Look for the podcast behind the loose brick on the north end of the Black Clock Tower, or wherever you find your podcasts. We suggest Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Help keep Black Clock Audio Tales running smoothly by donating five to ten bucks to paypal.me slash pgttcm. The title track is The Chamber by Kevin McLeod. Find us on the web at pgttcm.com and at Black Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, and the Facebook. And Black Clock Audio Tales on YouTube. Welcome to Black Clock Audio Tales. Lot 249 by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle There was one little indulgence which Abercrombie Smith always allowed himself. However closely his work might press upon him, twice a week on the Tuesday and the Friday it was his invariable custom to walk over to Farlingford, the residence of Dr Plumtree Peterson, situated about a mile and a half out of Oxford. Peterson had been a close friend of Smith's elder brother Francis, and as he was a bachelor, fairly well-to-do, with a good cellar and a better library, his house was a pleasant goal for a man who was in need of a brisk walk. Twice a week, then, the medical student would swing out of there along the dark country roads and spend a pleasant hour in Peterson's comfortable study, discussing over a glass of old port the gossip of the varsity or the latest developments of medicine or of surgery. On the day which followed his interview with Monkhouse Lee, Smith shut up his books at a quarter past eight, the hour when he usually started for his friend's house. As he was leaving his room, however, his eyes chanced to fall upon one of the books which Bellingham had lent him, and his conscience pricked him for not having returned it. However repellent the man might be, he should not be treated with discourtesy. Taking the book, he walked downstairs and knocked at his neighbour's door. There was no answer, but on turning the handle he found that it was unlocked. Pleased at the thought of avoiding an interview, he stepped inside and placed the book with his card upon the table. The lamp was turned half down, but Smith could see the details of the room plainly enough. It was all much as he had seen it before. The frieze, the animal-headed gods, the banging crocodile, and the table littered over with papers and dried leaves. The mummy case stood upright against the wall, but the mummy itself was missing. There was no sign of any second occupant of the room, and he felt as if he withdrew that he had probably done Bellingham an injustice. Had he a guilty secret to preserve, he would hardly leave his door open so that all the world might enter. The spiral stair was as black as pitch, and Smith was slowly making his way down its irregular steps when he was suddenly conscious that something had passed him in the darkness. There was a faint sound, a whiff of air, a light brushing past his elbow but so slight that he could scarcely be certain of it. 
He stopped and listened, but the wind was rustling among the ivy outside, and he could hear nothing else. Is that you, Styles? he shouted. There was no answer, and all was still behind him. It must have been a sudden gust of air, for there were crannies and cracks in the old turret, and yet he could almost sworn that he heard a footfall by his very side. He had emerged into the quadrangle, still turning the matter over in his head, when a man came running swiftly across the smooth cropped lawn. Is that you, Smith? Hello, Hasty. For God's sake, come at once. Young Lee is drowned. Here's Harrington of King's with the news. The doctor is out. You'll do, but come along at once. There may be life in him. Have you brandy? No. I'll bring some. There's a flask on my table. Smith bounded up the stairs, taking three at a time, seized the flask and was rushing down with it, when, as he passed Bellingham's room, his eyes fell upon something which left him gasping and staring upon the landing. The door which he had closed behind him was now open, and right in front of him, with the lamplight shining upon it, was the mummy case. Three minutes ago it had been empty, he could swear to that, and now it framed the lank body of its horrible occupant who stood grim and stark with his black shriveled face towards the door. The form was lifeless and inert, but it seemed to Smith as he gazed that there still lingered a lurid spark of vitality, some faint sign of consciousness in the little eyes which lurked in the depths of the hollow sockets. So astounded and shaken was he that he had forgotten his errand, and was still staring at the lean sunken figure when the voice of his friend below recalled him to himself. Come on, Smith, he shouted. It's life and death, you know. Hurry up. Now then, he added, as the medical student reappeared, let us do a sprint. It is well under a mile, and we should do it in five minutes. A human life is better worth running for than a pot. Neck and neck they dashed through the darkness, and did not pull up until, panting and spent, they had reached a little cottage by the river. Young Lee, limp and dripping like a broken water plant, was stretched upon the sofa, the green scum of the river upon his black hair, and a fringe of white foam upon his leaden-hued lips. Beside him knelt his fellow student, Harrington, endeavouring to chafe some warmth back into his rigid limbs. "'I think there's life in him,' said Smith, with his hand to the lad's side. "'Put your watch-glass to his lips. Yes, there's a dimming on it. You take one arm hasty, now work it as I do, and we'll soon pull him round.' For ten minutes they worked in silence inflating and depressing the chest of the unconscious man. At the end of that time a shiver ran through his body, his lips trembled and he opened his eyes. The three students burst out into an irrepressible cheer. Wake up, old chap, you've frightened us quite enough. Have some brandy, take a sip from the flask. A look of fear came into his eyes and he sank his face into his hands. How did you fall in? I didn't fall in. How then? I was thrown in. I was standing by the bank, and something from behind picked me up like a feather, and hurled me in. I heard nothing, I saw nothing, but I know what it was for all that. And so do I, whispered Smith. Lee looked up with a quick glance of surprise. You've learned then, he said. You remember the advice I gave you? Yes, and I begin to think that I shall take it. I don't know what the deuce you fellows are talking about, said Hasty, but I think if I were you, Harrington, I should get Lee to bed at once. It will be time enough to discuss the why and wherefore when he is a little stronger. I think, Smith, you and I can leave him alone now. I'm walking back to college. If you're coming in that direction, we can have a chat. 
But it was little chat that they had upon their homeward path. Smith's mind was too full of the incidents of the evening. The absence of the mummy from his neighbour's rooms, the step that passed him on the stair, the reappearance, the extraordinary, inexplicable reappearance of the grisly thing, and then this attack upon Lee, corresponding so closely to the previous outrage upon another man against whom Bellingham bore a grudge. All this settled in his thoughts, together with the many little incidents which had previously turned him against his neighbour, and the singular circumstance under which he was first called to him. What had been a dim suspicion, a vague, fantastic conjecture, had suddenly taken form, and stood out in his mind as a grim fact, a thing not to be denied. And yet how monstrous it was, how unheard of, how entirely beyond all bounds of human experience. An impartial judge, or even the friend who walked by his side, would simply tell him that his eyes had deceived him, and that the mummy had been there all the time, that young Lee had tumbled into the river, as any other man tumbles into a river, and that a blue pill was the best thing for a disordered liver. He felt that he would have said as much if the positions had been reversed, and yet he could swear that Bellingham was a murderer at heart, and that he wielded a weapon such as no man had ever used in all the grim history of crime. Hasty had branched off to his rooms with a few crisp and emphatic comments upon his friend's unsociability, and Abercrombie Smith crossed the quadrangle to his corner turret with a strong feeling of repulsion for his chambers and their associations. He would take Lee's advice and move his quarters as soon as possible, for how could a man study when his ear was ever straining for every murmur or footstep in the room below? He observed, as he crossed over the lawn, that the light was still shining in Bellingham's window, and as he passed up the staircase the door opened and the man himself looked out at him. With his fat, evil face he was like some bloated spider, fresh from the weaving of his poisonous web. "'Good evening,' said he. "'Won't you come in?' "'No,' cried Smith fiercely. "'No? You're as busy as ever? I wanted to ask you about Lee. I was sorry to hear there was a rumour that something was amiss with him.' His features were grave, but there was a gleam of a hidden laugh in his eyes as he spoke. Smith saw it, and he could have knocked him down for it. "'You'll be sorrier still to hear that Monkhouse Lee is doing very well and is out of all danger,' he answered. "'Your hellish tricks have not come off this time. Oh, you needn't try to brazen it out. I know all about it.' Bellingham took a step back from the angry student, and half closed the door as if to protect himself. "'You're mad,' he said. "'What do you mean?' you assert that I had anything to do with Lee's accident? Yes, thundered Smith, and that bag of bones behind you, you worked it between you. I tell you what it is, Master B, they have given up burning folk like you, but we still keep a hangman, and by George, if any man in this college meets his death while you are here, I'll have you up, and if you don't swing for it, it won't be my fault. You'll find that your filthy Egyptian tricks won't answer in England. You're a raving lunatic, said Bellingham. All right, you just remember what I say, for you'll find that I'll be better than my word. The door slammed and Smith went fuming up to his chamber, where he locked the door upon the inside and spent half the night in smoking his old briar and brooding over the strange events of the evening. Next morning Abercrombie Smith heard nothing of his neighbour, but Harrington called upon him in the afternoon to say that Lee was almost himself again. All day Smith stuck fast to his work, but in the evening he determined to pay the visit to his friend Dr. Peterson, upon which he had started upon the night before. A good walk and a friendly chat would be welcome to his jangled nerves. 
Bellingham's door was shut as he passed, but glancing back when he was some distance from the turret, he saw his neighbour's head at the window, outlined against the lamplight, his face pressed apparently against the glass as he gazed out into the darkness. It was a blessing to be away from all contact with him but if for a few hours, and Smith stepped out briskly and breathed the soft spring air into his lungs. The half-moon lay in the west between two gothic pinnacles and threw upon the silvered street a dark tracery from the stonework above. There was a brisk breeze and light fleecy clouds drifted swiftly across the sky. Olds was on the very border of the town, and in five minutes Smith found himself beyond the houses and between the hedges of a May-scented Oxfordshire lane. It was a lonely and little frequented road which led to his friend's house. Early as it was, Smith did not meet a single soul upon his way. He walked briskly along until he came to the avenue gate, which opened into the long gravel drive leading up to Farlingford. In front of him he could see the cosy red light of the windows glimmering through the foliage. He stood with his hand upon the iron latch of the swinging gate and glanced back at the road along which he had come. Something was coming swiftly down it. It moved in the shadow of the hedge, silently and furtively, a dark crouching figure, dimly visible against the black background. Even as he gazed back at it, it had lessened its distance by twenty paces and was fast closing upon him. Out of the darkness he had a glimpse of a scraggy neck and of two eyes that will ever haunt him in his dreams. He turned and with a cry of terror ran for his life up the avenue. There were the red lights, the signals of safety, almost within a stone's throw of him. He was a famous runner, but he had never run as he ran that night. The heavy gate had swung into place behind him, but he heard it dash open again before his pursuer. As he rushed madly and wildly through the night, he could hear a swift dry patter behind him, and could see as he threw back a glance that this horror was bounding like a tiger at his heels, with blazing eyes and one stringy arm outthrown. Thank God the door was ajar. He could see the thin bar of light which shot from the lamp in the hall. Nearer yet sounded the clatter from behind. He heard a horse gurgling at his very shoulder. With a shriek he flung himself against the door, slammed and bolted it behind him, and sank half-fainting onto the hall chair. "'My goodness, Smith, what's the matter?' asked Peterson, appearing at the door of his study. "'Give me some brandy.' Peterson disappeared and came rushing out again with a glass and a decanter. "'You need it,' he said, as his visitor drank off what he poured out for him. "'Why, man, you're as white as a cheese.' Smith laid down his glass, rose up, and took a deep breath. "'I am my own man again now,' said he. "'I was never so unmanned before.' But with your leave, Peterson, I will sleep here tonight, for I don't think I could face that road again except by daylight. It's weak, I know, but I can't help it. Peterson looked at his visitor with a very questioning eye. Of course you shall sleep here if you wish. I'll tell Mrs. Burney to make up the spare bed. Where are you off to now? Come with me to the window that overlooks the door. I want you to see what I have seen. They went up to the window of the upper hall, whence they could look down upon the approach to the house. The drive and the fields on either side lay quiet and still, bathed in the peaceful moonlight. "'Well, really, Smith,' remarked Peterson, "'it's as well that I know you to be an abstemious man. What in the world can have frightened you?' "'I'll tell you presently, but where can it have gone?' "'Ah, now look, look, see the curve of the road just beyond your gate?' "'Yes, I see. You needn't pinch my arm off. I saw someone pass. 
I should say a man, rather thin, apparently, and tall, very tall. But what of him, and what of yourself? You are still shaking like an aspen leaf. I have been within the hand-grip of the devil, that's all. But come down to your study, and I shall tell you the whole story. He did so under the cheery lamplight, with a glass of wine on the table beside him, and the portly form and florid face of his friend in front. He narrated in their order all the events, great and small, which had formed so singular a chain from the night on which he had found Bellingham fainting in front of the mummy-case until his horrid experience of an hour ago. There now, he said, as he concluded, that's the whole black business. It's monstrous and incredible, but it's true. Dr. Plumtree Peterson sat for some time in silence with a very puzzled expression upon his face. I never heard of such a thing in my life. Never, he said at last. You have told me the facts. Now tell me your inferences. You can draw your own, but I should like to hear yours. You have thought over the matter, and I have not. Well, it must be a little vague in detail, but the main points seem to me to be clear enough. This fellow Bellingham, in his eastern studies, has got hold of some infernal secret by which a mummy, or possibly only this particular mummy, can be temporarily brought to life. He was trying this disgusting business on the night when he fainted. No doubt the sight of the creature moving had shaken his nerve, even though he expected it. You remember that almost the first words he said were to call out upon himself as a fool. Well, he got more hardened afterwards and carried the matter through without fainting. The vitality which he could put into it was evidently only a passing thing, for I have seen it continually in its case as dead as this table. He has some elaborate process, I fancy, by which he brings the thing to pass. Having done it, he naturally bethought him that he might use the creature as an agent. It has intelligence and it has strength. For some purpose he took Lee into his confidence. But Lee, like a decent Christian, would have nothing to do with such a business. Then they had a row, and Lee vowed that he would tell his sister of Bellingham's true character. Bellingham's game was to prevent him, and he nearly managed it by setting this creature of his on his track. He had already tried its powers upon another man, Norton, towards whom he had a grudge. It is the merest chance that he has not two murders upon his soul. Then, when I taxed him with the matter, he had the strongest reasons for wishing to get me out of the way before I could convey my knowledge to anyone else. He got his chance when I went out, for he knew my habits and where I was bound for. I have had a narrow shave, Peterson, and it is mere luck you didn't find me on your doorstep in the morning. I'm not a nervous man as a rule, and I never thought to have the fear of death put upon me as it was tonight. My dear boy, you take the matter too seriously, said his companion. Your nerves are out of order with your work, and you make too much of it. How could such a thing as this stride about the streets of Oxford, even at night, without being seen? It has been seen. There is quite a scare in the town about an escaped ape, as they imagine the creature to be. It's the talk of the place. Well, it's a striking chain of events, and yet, my dear fellow, you must allow that each incident in itself is capable of a more natural explanation. What, even my adventure of tonight? Certainly. You come out with your nerves all unstrung, and your head full of this theory of yours. Some gaunt, half-famished tramp steals after you, and seeing you run, is emboldened to pursue you. Your fears and imagination do the rest. It won't do, Peterson, it won't do. And again, in the instance of your finding the mummy case empty, and then a few moments later with an occupant, you know that it was lamplight, that the lamp was half turned down, and you had no special reason to look hard at the case, 
it is quite possible that you may have overlooked the creature in the first instance. No, no, it's out of the question, and then Lee may have fallen into the river, and Norton been garroted. It is certainly a formidable indictment that you have against Bellingham, but if you were to place it before a police magistrate, he would simply laugh in your face. I know he would. That's why I mean to take the matter into my own hands, eh? Yes, I feel that a public duty rests upon me, and besides, I must do it for my own safety, unless I choose to allow myself to be hunted by this beast out of the college, and that would be a little too feeble. I have quite made up my mind what I shall do, and first of all, may I use your paper and pens for an hour? Most certainly you will find all that you want upon that side table. Abercrombie Smith sat down before a sheet of fool's cap, and for an hour, and then for a second hour, his pen travelled swiftly over it. Page after page was finished and tossed aside, while his friend leaned back in his armchair, looking across at him with a patient curiosity. At last, with an exclamation of satisfaction, Smith sprang to his feet. He gathered his papers up into order and laid the last one upon Peterson's desk. Kindly sign this as a witness, he said. A witness of what? Of my signature and of the date. The date is the most important. Why, Peterson, my life might hang upon it. My dear Smith, you are talking wildly. Let me beg you to go to bed. On the contrary, I never spoke so deliberately in my life, and I will promise to go to bed the moment you have signed it. But what is it? It's a statement of all that I have been telling you tonight. I wish you to witness it. Certainly, said Peterson, signing his name under that of his companion. There you are. But what is the idea? You will kindly retain it and produce it in case I am arrested. Arrested for what? For murder. It is quite on the cards. I wish to be ready for every event. There is only one course open to me and I am determined to take it. For heaven's sake, don't do anything rash. Believe me, it would be far more rash to adopt any other course. I hope that we won't need to bother you, but it will ease my mind to know that you have this statement of my motives. And now I am ready to take your advice and go to roost, for I want to be at my best in the morning. Abercrombie Smith was not an entirely pleasant man to have as an enemy. Slow and easy-tempered, he was formidable when driven into action. He brought to every purpose in life the same deliberate resoluteness which had distinguished him as a scientific student. He had laid his studies aside for a day, but he intended that the day should not be wasted. Not a word did he say to his host as to his plans, but by nine o'clock he was well on his way to Oxford. In the high street he stopped at Clifford's, the gunmaker's, and bought a heavy revolver with a box of central fire cartridges. Six of them he slipped into the chambers, and half-cocking the weapon, placed it in the pocket of his coat. He then made his way to Hastie's rooms, where the big oarsman was lounging over his breakfast, with the sporting times propped up against the coffee pot. Hello, what's up? he asked. Have some coffee. No, thank you. I want you to come with me, Hasty, and do what I ask you. Certainly, my boy. And bring a heavy stick with you. Hello, Hasty stared. Here's a hunting crop that would fell an ox. One other thing. You have a box of amputating knives. Give me the longest of them. There you are. You seem to be fairly on the war trail. Anything else? No, that will do. Smith placed the knife inside his coat and led the way to the quadrangle. We are neither of us chickens, Hasty, said he, but I think I can do this job alone, but I take you as a precaution. I'm going to have a little talk with Bellingham. 
If I have only him to deal with, I won't, of course, need you. If I shout, however, up you come, and lam out with your whip as hard as you can lick. Do you understand? All right, I'll come if I hear you bellow. Stay here, then. It may be a little time, but don't budge until I come down. I'm a fixture. Smith ascended the stairs, opened Bellingham's door, and stepped in. Bellingham was seated behind his table, writing. Beside him, amongst his litter of strange possessions, towered the mummy case, with its sale number 249 still stuck upon its front, and its hideous occupants stiff and stark within it. Smith looked very deliberately around him, closed the door, locked it, took the key from the inside, then stepping across to the fireplace, struck a match and set the fire alight. Bellingham sat staring with amazement and rage upon his bloated face. Well, really now, make yourself at home, he gasped. Smith sat himself deliberately down, placing his watch upon the table, drew out his pistol, cocked it and laid it in his lap. Then he took the long amputating knife from his bosom and threw it down in front of Bellingham. Now then, said he, just get to work and cut up that mummy. Oh, is that it, said Bellingham with a sneer. Yes, that is it. They tell me that the law can't touch you, but I have a law that will set matters straight. If in five minutes you have not set to work, I swear by the God who made me that I will put a bullet through your brain. You would murder me? Bellingham had half risen, and his face was the colour of putty. Yes, and for what? To stop your mischief, one minute has gone. But what have I done? I know, and you know. This is mere bullying. Two minutes are gone. But you must give reasons. You're a madman, a dangerous madman. Why should I destroy my own property? It's a valuable mummy. You must cut it up, and you must burn it. I will do no such thing. Four minutes are gone. Smith took up the pistol, and he looked towards Bellingham with an inexorable face. As the second hand stole round, he raised his hand, and the finger twitched upon the trigger. There, there, I'll do it, screamed Bellingham. In frantic haste, he caught up the knife and hacked at the figure of the mummy, ever glancing round to see the eye and the weapon of his terrible visitor bent upon him. The creature crackled and snapped under every stab of the keen blade. A thick yellow dust rose up from it. Spices and dried essences rained down upon the floor. Suddenly, with a rending crack, its backbone snapped asunder, and it fell, a brown heap of sprawling limbs upon the floor. Now into the fire, said Smith. The flames leapt and roared as the dry and tinder-like debris was piled upon it. The little room was like the stokehole of a steamer, and the sweat ran down the faces of the two men. But still the one stooped and worked, while the other sat watching him with a set face. A thick, fat smoke oozed out from the fire, and a heavy smell of burnt resin and singed hair filled the air. In a quarter of an hour a few charred and brittle sticks were all that was left of lot number 249. Perhaps that will satisfy you, snarled Bellingham with hate and fear in his little grey eyes as he glanced back at his tormentor. No, I must make a clean sweep of all your materials. We must have no more devil's tricks. In with all these leaves, they may have something to do with it. And what now, asked Bellingham, when the leaves also had been added to the blaze. Now the roll of papyrus which you had on the table that night. It's in that drawer, I think. No, no, shouted Bellingham. Don't burn that. Why, man, you don't know what you do. It's unique. It contains wisdom which is nowhere else to be found. 
out with it. But look here, Smith, you can't really mean it. I'll share the knowledge with you. I'll teach you all that is in it. Or stay, let me only copy it before you burn it. Smith stepped forward and turned the key in the drawer. Taking out the yellow curled roll of paper, he threw it into the fire and pressed it down with his heel. Bellingham screamed and grabbed at it, but Smith pushed him back and stood over it until it was reduced to a formless grey ash. Now, Master B, said he, I think I have pretty well drawn your teeth. You'll hear from me again if you return to your old tricks. And now good morning, for I must go back to my studies. And such is the narrative of Abercrombie Smith as to the singular events which occurred in Old College, Oxford, in the spring of 84. As Bellingham left the university immediately afterwards, and was last heard of in the Sudan, there is no one who can contradict his statement, but the wisdom of men is small and the ways of nature are strange. And who shall put a bound to the dark things which may be found by those who seek for them? Black Clock Audio Tales Edited by Daniel Spitzer Black Clock Audio Tales is a PGTTCM production. Find us on the web at pgttcm.com and at Black Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, and the Facebook. And Black Clock Audio Tales on YouTube.